Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. Uh, Greg and I decided to do a special episode, a special podcast episode, covering some of our reflections from the election as we're recording this and hoping to have it out in the next couple of days. It is Wednesday, November 7th, and we have survived the election and also earlier today had a nice conversation with Professor Jessica Gottlieb, and we learned a little bit about uh, democracy and democracy erosion and how some of those things may uh, or may not and the ways that they do raise questions for the U.S. But in thinking about democracy, we had a nice example of it yesterday. And these were the 2018 midterm elections. And leading up to it, people were really interested to see how the pollsters did as one kind of piece of this because there's some famous examples from the 2016 of people thinking the pollsters were way off, which I think in retrospect, that's not really that true or exactly how the probabilities work. But what the pollsters and folks at, for example, 538 and other uh, people were um, suggesting would happen is kind of what we got, I think. I mean, you had a uh, House of Representatives that uh, is now controlled by the the Democrats, which was widely predicted. The Senate, there was uh, conversations around whether it would stay in Republican power or not. uh, Republicans actually picked up two seats projected, I think, in the Senate. Perhaps more than two. Perhaps more. So maybe two that have been called so far. Two that have been called, but Florida hasn't been called as of 3.30 Central Standard Time. Uh, Florida hasn't been called, but it, it doesn't look good for for uh, the incumbent, Bill Nelson. It looks like the, the governor, Rick Scott, will win that seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, de- the, 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 the Republicans flipped Indiana, Missouri, and North Dakota, mm-hmm. uh, and they might flip Florida, uh, whereas the Republicans lost, the Democrats flipped one state, Nevada. But I think I think that uh, yeah, five thirty eight and the and the pollsters didn't do badly. Uh, I think in total, but they did. I think they underestimated how strong the Republican vote was in some of these Senate races. So, for example, Joe Donnelly, the incumbent Democrat in Indiana, uh, seemed to be in pretty good shape if you looked at the at five thirty eight or the upshot or some of the polling, and he lost pretty bad. I think he lost by eight points or something. Likewise, Claire McCaskill in, in Missouri lost worse, I think, than predicted. Than yeah. predicted. John Tester seems to have held on in Montana, which uh, looked for a while like it might flip. But, uh, but there the, the, the prognostications seem to have turned out right. So one thing that might be, I want to focus on a couple of, races that I thought were interesting and that we have personal different levels of personal connection to, but I'm from Georgia. And so I was following the governor's race in Georgia, which as of this, uh, as of the time of recording, uh, I think Brian Kemp has 50.3 or 0.4% and needs 50% to stave off a runoff. Um, that election was a really weird one. I thought in the way that it was administered, you know, you had the current secretary of state, uh, who's ultimately in charge of the elections on the ballot. And then there were all, you know, these accusations, uh, several of them, of voter suppression and purging voter rolls. And then um, a 
Right. We should make clear for listeners that Brian Kemp, the Republican candidate for governor, is the Secretary of, is State, Secretary of State of yeah. Georgia and thus was overseeing an election in which he was running. Mm -hmm. And which he's now winning uh, right. or staving off a runoff by 0.4 percentage points. Right. And so, um, you know, and there were accusations of uh, voter suppression and cleaning uh, voter rolls. And then there, a couple of days before, which we were talking about in our uh, podcast conversation this morning, um, uh, was that it was... Um, uh, there was a federal judge. There was a federal right? judge that came in. Thank you. There was a federal judge that came in on, I think, Sunday and said this process had to stop. Right. And then the actual election is being decided by fewer votes than the accusations of voter suppression. Right. So there there was uh, – if my read of the media on that was that there were 70,000 uh, potential voters scrubbed from the, the voting rolls by uh, Mr. Kemp's office – Claiming that they weren't perfect matches mm -hmm. for names or, or uh, other uh, for other reasons, and that at least some of the reporting indicated that there seemed to be a, a overrepresentation of minorities in the in the yes, names that were scrubbed. Now that's seventy thousand. Those seventy thousand people. I don't know how closely they followed the news. Did they think that they were eligible, ineligible? Did they show up? Did they did did they not show up? Did they show up and then were made to cast a provisional ballot? In any event, that's a lot more theoretically than the the margin by which uh, the Secretary of State, Mr. Kemp, avoided a runoff. Mm -hmm. So it's a uh, one wonders what the result will that of that will be. I, I saw Stacey Abrams, the Democratic candidate, said she was willing to go to court to mm -hmm. to try to adjudicate this. Yeah, she's not. Uh, she's not conceding. She's not conceding. Um, so that was one of the interesting ones, just because it also has some of the other things that we've talked about going on with the accusations of voter suppression right. and uh, the exact matches, I think was, was and then this, the you know, this idea of should, a should the official running the election also be able to be on the ballot? And so I think it just, it, it asked some interesting democracy norm right. issues. Um, so I thought that one was interesting. And of course, right here in Texas, we had a nationally uh, focused on election and we mentioned in the last conversation we had, not with uh, Professor Gottlieb, but with Professor Taylor um, two weeks ago, that there wasn't a lot of conversation around our state offices. So around the governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, which are the big uh, state-level offices with a lot of executive power. And those didn't turn out to even be particularly close. Closer than, than they have been in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, Governor Abbott won a pretty convincing victory, but the, the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, only got 51%, roughly 51%. Yeah, so it was only a few points. And, and uh, Ken Paxton, the attorney general who's under indictment and thus could not vote for himself because if you're under indictment in Texas, you lose the franchise. Uh, <laughs> he also won with, with uh, I think, less than 51%. He got over 50%, but I think less than 51%. Or if he got over 51%, it was just over. So those were the probably the two most controversial mm -hmm. candidates, but it, it demonstrated how how red Texas is that that Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, who was famous for uh, for uh, supporting the, the, the bathroom bill down here, much like the bathroom bill in North Carolina that lost them all that business and eventually got repealed. Uh, he, he won re-election uh, and, and uh, our attorney general under indictment won re-election. 
And the one that everyone was paying attention to was... Betomania. Was the, yeah, the Betomania and Ted Cruz. I'm sorry, Betomania. Betomania, yeah. Betomania. <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was some... This one was really covered. It was covered by Late Night. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that was our national race. And yeah. it, uh, as it was coming in, my wife and I were watching the returns last night. And that one was interesting to watch because the areas that were reporting were kind of... Uh, skewed in the beginning and so you had it one way and then you had another you know, was reporting is watching it and it was it was interesting to watch that one play out but i think it i think it is noteworthy or at least kind of abstracting from to think about what does this mean for uh for president trump and core support um so you have two states like georgia and texas where republicans have been dominating the Senate races and have been dominating the statewide races for 20 years. Um, since 1994, there's been no statewide Democrat elected in Texas since 1994. And I think that was Ann Richards. Okay. And in Georgia, I can't remember. I'd have to think for a bit. Um, it's been a while since, uh, I guess Zell Miller was probably the last Democrat. Oh, I got that wrong. It wasn't Ann Richards. It was Bob Bullock as Lieutenant Governor. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure because 1994 is when George W. Bush was elected governor of Texas and he had a Democratic lieutenant governor. No relation, by the no, way. No, no relation that, that I'm Justin aware of. <laughs> He's from the Georgia Bullocks, not the Texas yep. Bullocks. Um, and so the margins of the victory for those uh, statewide offices across both states narrowed in this election. Yeah. But, the, but, the, but um, Republicans fended off challengers. And maintained power. So I, I think there are two things that I was wanting to get your thoughts on that were that I've been thinking about is how to interpret this election. So there's not a red wave. Um, there's not a blue wave. Uh, at the federal level, the the houses aren't uniform uh, unified anymore, and so that's likely to have some governing consequences. At least in normal administrations, it'll be interesting to see. You know, just today, Jeff Sessions has resigned. Um, there's a new attorney general, acting attorney general has been appointed. It's already, uh, you know, uh, publishing policy statements um, about the Mueller investigation. Uh, President Trump had a um, had a, uh, uh, a press uh, press conference, press conference, full on press conference, full on press conference. East room of the White House called Jim Acosta a horrible human being. So no. call Jim Acosta a horrible human being. Very combative. Very no. like he, I won. Yeah, I won. And and if you're thinking about doing any investigations or pursuing these things further, I'm going to take. I think the quote was a warlike posture. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this is playing out. You have the state pieces, which were we focused on first, that I think are are interesting and very important. And then you have the national narrative that's going to come out of this, which uh, will dominate the political cycle for a little bit and it sets the terms of engagement I think between the two political parties moving forward mm -hmm. and so I was reading some stuff before we chatted today and there's discussion about how people think the president will respond although I think we have some initial evidence but really some conversation about what should the Democrat strategy be with a house and I was just chatting with some friends and other political science folks today and there seems to be a real disagreement about whether Democrats, now that they have the House, should use this opportunity to play ball with the president and try to 
get um, some things passed with respect to immigration or infrastructure. Um, and the president at least alluded initially that he was open to those conversations um, or whether the Democrats should kind of double down on this uh, anti-Trump strategy and on the strategy of, of pursuing further investigations, trying to get to the bottom of the degree to which there's Russian collusion, trying to get to the bottom of some of the other charges against the president and um, and people close to him that the Mueller investigation has been uh, you know, we had now have several indictments of people who were at the very several more than more than twenty, I think, and and often very very close to the president's inner circle and architects of the campaign. Right. And so, do you have any guesses or any? I mean, it's you know, this is this is my hot take on this. Yeah, yeah. So, what's your hot right. take on what's on what's so, next? Yeah, yeah. So. I think that, that both sides are going to say that they want to cooperate and there's not going to be any cooperation. Uh, I, I can't see how there's going to be because if you're, if you're a Democrat in the House and you're a committee chair, you're going to want to see the, – you're going to be using subpoena power to call people from the administration up. You're going to get the president's tax returns. You can't not do that. You've been saying you're going to do that the whole time. That's why your, your base elected you. And, and sure, Nancy Pelosi says, I want to work with the president. And the president says, I want to work with Nancy Pelosi. But let's look at these issues. There's no immigrant. There's no common ground on immigration between this president and a Democratic Congress. Even on an infrastructure bill, the president's going to insist on money for the wall. And I just don't think a Democratic House of Representatives is going to, is going to go for that. Yeah. Uh, where else do they cooperate? They, they're on fundamentally different pages about tax policy. Uh, I think the president is just going to use executive orders on trade and on immigration, which I think are the only two issues he really cares about, uh, to do what he wants. And the, he's going to tell the Congress to, you know, go to go uh, go fishing. So to speak. <laughs> go fishing. Uh, yeah. and, and he will run against the do-nothing Democrats in Congress. Now, I think the Democrats if they're smart, are going to do two things. Well, I don't know if they're smart. I, uh, I'm a college professor, not a political operative. So maybe, <laughs> maybe my take on this is wrong. But it seems to me they're going to do two things. And whether this is smart or not, we'll find out in 2020. They are going to do investigations of this administration. And they're going to try to protect Robert Mueller. And I'll say something about Mueller in a minute. And they're going to, I think, try to adopt a, a bunch of legislation that they know is never going to become law, kick it over to the Senate and be able to say, be able to go to the country and say, look, we tried to initiate things on immigration, on health care, on uh, uh, you name the issue. Right. And and we sent it to the Senate and it died. Because the president wouldn't push the Republicans in the Senate. And he can make them do anything he wants to cooperate. I, I think that's going to be the... I mean, there's going to be some issues. You know, the, the, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, trade agreement, which we talked about in our first podcast with Raymond Robertson, that's going to have to go to Congress, the new Congress. My guess is that it probably has enough support across the aisles. I mean, there's, there's Democrats... Uh, there's 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 Republicans on the right and Democrats on the left who are vote against anything I think on trade. Trump can probably bring most of those Republicans on the right around. A lot of Democrats will oppose this. 
just because it's Trump and because they're suspicious of trade. The Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren types. Uh, but in general, I think we're not going to see anything get done. And I, I think it's entirely possible we'll have at least one government shutdown. President Trump talks about government shutdowns as if he likes them. He, you know, this is a guy who said trade, trade wars are easy to win. I think that it fits into his personality of, of, of combativeness and, and confrontation. And I think it, he thinks he might be able to win a government shutdown. We'll see. The, the, the past evidence of government shutdowns are that they usually don't redound to the benefit of the party who is seen as causing them, right? Bill Clinton, most famously, and the Republicans in the late 90s. So I got a couple other hot takes, though, I want to give you <laughs> before, we, before we, we run out of time. The, the conventional wisdom in the mainstream media NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the kind of things that I read is that this was a good day for the Democrats. I'm not so sure. The fact that Florida uh, elected a Republican governor who, it, who threw himself into President Trump's arms, who ran ads saying that he put his kids to bed at night by reading them The Art of the Deal, Rick DeSantis, he won the governorship of Florida. And the fact that an incumbent Democratic senator was defeated in Florida, uh, I think doesn't bode well for Democrats going forward. Uh, you know, the narrative is, well, Trump only could bring candidates across the line in states that were already pretty deeply red. That's not Florida. Florida is as purple as you get. Uh, President Obama carried Florida twice. Florida had an incumbent Democratic senator in, in Bill Nelson, who I don't think was elected in the in in the twenty uh, in the, in that last wave where a lot of, of you know six years ago, if I could do my math, twenty twelve, <laughs> when a lot of Democrats squeaked by in seats. I think Bill, if I remember correctly, Bill Nelson was a two term Democratic senator, so. That doesn't, that doesn't bode well for the Democrats. And the fact that in Ohio, although Sherrod Brown, the incumbent Democratic senator, won relatively easily, a Republican governor was elected in Ohio. So I think what you're talking about, if you're a Democrat and you're looking at 2020, is that you are going to have to take Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the states that uh, President Trump took to get him over 270, that people thought were part of the blue wall for Hillary Clinton. Well, we found out they weren't the blue wall in, 20, in 2016. The good thing for Democrats is that all three of those states uh, elected Democratic governors. And Pennsylvania re-elected a Democratic governor. In Wisconsin, ousted Scott Walker. And in Michigan, elected a Democratic governor. But we used to talk about the, the fact that Republicans, in order to win the presidency, had to draw to an inside straight. It might be that we're getting to a point, at least in the short term, uh, before these demographic changes that, you know, the close votes in, in Georgia and Texas and all uh, perhaps presage, but before that gets realized, Democrats are going to have to draw to an inside straight to win the presidency. The other thing that I think is should be disturbing for Democrats is that conventional wisdom is always high turnout elections favor Democrats. 
Well, this was, although we haven't seen final figures, everybody says this was a high turnout election. So where was the blue tsunami, right? When the Republicans uh, switched Congress in 1994, they got 60 seats. They picked up 60 seats. When the Republicans shifted Congress in uh, 2010, the Tea Party revolt, they got like 54 yeah, seats. Yeah, I was that number earlier, yeah. What are, what are Democrats going to get? Somewhere in the low 30s mm -hmm. of the flip. So, you know, if, if, if your sympathies lie with the Democrats, as mine do these days, uh, you're happy that the Democrats took the House to put some restraints on this president. But, but this is not, if I were a Democratic political operative, this is, this is, I wouldn't be dancing in the streets right now. I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, it, I mean, and if you're a, if you're a Republican strategist, I think you got to be happy with what you picked up. This is showing a national strategy. Right. Our electoral college is how we de decide the uh, presidential election. And, and those house races are not a model of what the presidential races, governorships and senatorial races are because, you know, you, you take Florida by three votes and you get all of its electoral votes, you know, and, and, and that's that was the genius of Steve Bannon, right? To concentrate the Trump electoral strategy at the end on you know the squeak through popular you know take take squeak through the popular vote in, en in in enough states to get your electoral college majority. You know Democrats can run up as big a margin in California and New York as as they want. We found out in 2016 that doesn't get you elected. Yeah, I, what's What's interesting, I think, is when I remember when Trump was uh, announcing a candidacy, and I remember going round and round with political scientists. I'm a public administration scholar. I'm not going to claim political science today. Hey, I study the Middle East. <laughs> American politics is my hobby. <laughs> yeah, and I remember everyone saying this man has a ceiling, right. and it is fifteen percent of Republican primary voters. And then it was 20% of primary Republican primary voters all the way right up into the election when he wins, right? And then once Trump won, I uh, would talk with Republicans and Democrats. Republicans were clearly excited, clearly, you know, wanted to change things up, were excited how he was changing things up. And Democrats were over here saying, but his approval rating is just going to fall. He's going to be so terrible. And look, he's the least liked president right after election. And his approval ratings are just going to sink. They, you know, and none of this has happened. And, you know, it, uh, I think uh, Trump's approval ratings leading up to the election were 41, 42%. You know, that, yeah, the, they, they, they varied, obviously, but they were in the low 40s. In the low 40s. And that's a lot different ballgame than what a lot of people thought would be low 30s. Yeah, exactly. For the ceiling. And so. President Obama's approvals when he went into the 2010 election were in the low 40s. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that different. And so, I, what I'm troubled by today isn't really uh, even the, the differences of the power dynamics within the, the US federal government, it's not even as much about the wins uh, or losses at the state level. None of this, none of this concerns me like this does. And what really concerns me is the strategy that 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 at least won or or kept 
a red uh, stronghold. And the strategy leading up to the election was really clearly based in fear tactics yeah. and in large part fears of, of immigrants and fears of immigrants that are, that are walking their way to the U.S. border to seek political asylum. Um, this isn't an invasion. This isn't an attack. This is a, a, a somewhat sizable uh, group of people coming to the U.S. Border Not even that sizable. To, yeah. To, it's like half of what a crossing is in a week anyways, as, as someone was pointing out to me earlier. And so what I'm really concerned about isn't the actual outcomes of this particular election. I think that uh, that there are some positive things for Republicans and some positive things for Democrats. But the, the part that's really frightening to me as we start moving forward to 220, 2020 is the strategy that worked, uh, arguably to the to the party that was using it, was this strategy of fear of the other. And this is what we're seeing play out in populist politics and far right wing stuff in Europe. And this is something that's really hard to back down from as a strategy, particularly when you see it working. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you consider people like Beto O'Rourke and and uh, the Florida gubernatorial candidate, Mr. Gillum, uh, who ran very kind of sunshine, positive, uh, progressive campaigns. And they were defeated by people who, who played a very negative uh, campaign strategy, particularly on immigration. And uh, it was enough for, for DeSantis and, and Cruz to... To, to defeat them, not by huge margins, but to defeat them. And a loss is a loss. And so I I think the president will take from this that that strategy works. He considers that he won the midterms. And that, as, as delusional sometimes as the president can be about reality, he's not wrong about that. He's not wrong about that. Losing the House was something, but he did historically well in in increasing his party's senate representation in the in the first midterm of his uh, of his presidency and he can claim it seems to me some amount of credit for that and knowing mr trump he'll he'll claim more than his share of the credit mm -hmm. and that will i think lead him to say my strategy worked and all you paul ryan types who said I should be talk, talking about the marvelous economy. Why don't you shut up? Paul Ryan will shut up because he's leaving. Jeff Flake is leaving. Bob Corker's leaving. People who were willing to speak out against the president are leaving. And uh, I think that it's his Republican Party now to an even greater extent than it was in 2016. I think that's true. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that shapes the dialogue and the, the rhetoric moving forward. And how it shapes the Democratic response response and the Democratic primaries. Yeah. And what it, and what it means for, you know, all kinds of policy things, particularly with Congress is going to be in deadlock. Yeah. Uh, almost guaranteed, I think. I, mean, I they think They might so find too. some things to work on, but it seems just highly unlikely in the environment. Yeah. And so it will be these, again, executive orders changing policies on trade and immigration and seeing the militarization or potential militarization of the southern border of the U.S. is all these things are just a different type of game than, I, than I've seen. Um, so it should be, should be interesting. 
Um, any other, I think you had some nice final words there, but anything else you'd like to toss in? No, I will, we'll, we'll keep, uh, we'll, if people like the hot takes, we'll keep doing the hot takes. We'll see, we'll see if people, if people listen, but we will be back in your feed with, with, uh, more substantive, uh, discussions of public policy issues, uh, with our colleagues from the Bush School down the road. Yep. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Hope you enjoy.